You are listening to New World Order, episode 25 of season 13 for day 167 of 2019. Hey everybody, this is Klaatu. I'm sitting in a flat right now, surrounded by cardboard boxes. Or rather, I'm sorry, I'm sitting surrounded by cardboard boxes in a flat right now. Because uh, I'm moving, I'm moving to the South Island of New Zealand. If I miss an episode next week or thereabouts, you'll know why I'm in the middle of a move. But I, I wanted to to drop in and get an episode recorded while I can. We're going to talk about metadata today. We're going to talk about some listener feedback, and I think that's it. I cannot talk too much about Slacker, no, Slackware right now, because I don't have a Slackware machine that can be turned on. I've got a, a tower over there in the corner. It needs a box, but there's no monitor. And my Slackware laptop has been put in a box as well because I really can only bring I, I can only bring in the car one laptop, and that's got to be my work laptop, which is running Rel Seven, and uh, that's what I'm recording this on right now. So if the quality is different, it's because I'm really quite uh, I'm on a very different system right now. So all my tools are completely wrong. Uh, I did copy my Audacity config from Slacker Media so that I can at least use Audacity without without all of the weird key combinations that they use by default. I just, I before I had copied the config over, I tried to zoom in on, on Audacity, and I discovered that for zooming in on Audacity, the keyboard, the default keyboard shortcut for that is Control-1. Who came up with that idea? Control-1. Why, why would, what? Why would that be zooming in? It makes no sense whatsoever. Use any multimedia application out there. You, you'd never suspect Control-1 would be zooming in, but that is the default in Audacity. Uh, if, you're, if you're a user of Audacity, or if you are thinking about becoming a user of Audacity, do yourself a favor. Go over to slackermedia.info, go to the downloads link, get my config file for, for Audacity. Sincerely, it, it it changes the application, at least in my very humble opinion. It changes the application completely. It's a completely different application with my config file. You can zoom in, you can zoom out, you can delete quickly with one button, uh, with one keystroke, and it's just everything is. Uh, I mean, you can do that already on Audacity, but sometimes it's is it backspace, is it delete. Who cares? Nobody uses backspace and delete in the multimedia world. Well, some people do. But uh, it's much smarter for me, at least, to just make it the X key. X for cut. Makes sense, right? Uh, sort of. So you hit that and it deletes. It's just the, the configuration is so much better, in my humble opinion. Uh, and, and then the toolbars that they give you on Audacity take up like a third of the screen. Um, not on my config, it doesn't. So anyway, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm recording on Audacity on RHEL 7. And I have to say... Aside from the default configuration of Audacity, which um, I'm sure for a lot of people actually is fine, for me it's I, I just prefer to change it. But um, the fact that I'm doing this on Rail 7, if you told me that I could be doing a podcast on Rail 7, if you told me a year ago, I would have said no. There's no chance. Fedora maybe, but not Rail 7. I would I would have said that Rail 7 didn't even have Audacity available to it because, as far as I can tell, Rail 7 has a had a very narrow view of what a computer would look like. And mostly it looks like a server. And there's a little bit of allowance for, okay, well, you might be using this as a workstation in your business. Um, but 
Rail 7, Rail 8, because of largely because of flat packs, has just absolutely come into its own in terms of actually being a desktop uh, solution. And it is really, really exciting. I know I've mentioned it before, but I just wanted to kind of emphasize that I'm actually doing stuff on this thing and putting it and actually releasing things, you know, from from Rel Seven. It's kind of kind of interesting, kind of neat. Um, really, just because I think that there's a big gap in the Linux desktop market for a, a practical, stable operating system. Like, that's why I've been banging on about Slackware for the past ten years. It's just it is exactly what people need in a desktop distribution. Um, but if you don't believe that, then maybe you can believe it for, for RHEL. A lot of people believe it about Fedora, and that's just not the case. That's way too unstable. People don't want that. Um, or I don't think people want that. But anyway, I'm going on about something that this show is not today about. So the thing that it is about is going to be some listener feedback. And this one is from Tim. And Tim says, thanks for sharing Cal-J, which I'd never really noticed before. I usually use the percent formatting to get the Julian date. So date plus percent J provides, uh, on the day that he wrote this, 162. And if you do something fancy like date space plus, quote, today is percent J of percent capital Y, close quote, then you get, you get um, today is day 162 of 2019. That's a nice little trick. I, I've, I've never bothered making fancy, fancy formatting like that. Well, that's not true. I actually do that a lot. Um, but I don't do it with words, is what I was thinking. Like, I'd, I've never thought to make a sentence out of a date command. That's really cool. Because um, that's a very friendly way of kind of presenting the information. So anyway, Tim says, It should take any date formatting string that uh, strf time uh, recognizes, including percent %j, for the day of the year. Great for scripts, too. Thanks for the podcast. Thank you, Tim, because, uh, as I've just said, I've never really thought to use date that way. I mean, I know about the percent syntax, because if you go to man date, you you see it. It's a long list of, of various percentages, percent notations that you can use. And I've used it before. I've never used it, actually, for the Julian, for the Julian day. I think partly, part of that might be because under the percent J or next to the percent J in the man page, it just says day of year, 001.366. And so that doesn't have that keyword of Julian in it. So I, I don't think I've ever really noticed that that's even a thing in the date command. And then I never really, like I said, I never really thought to, to incorporate it into a into a human readable sentence. I've used percent, you know, percent M dash, percent delta, percent capital, or lowercase y for sort of, the traditional U.S. notation of month, day, year. I think that's the traditional U.S. notation, right? They in the U.S. you do month, date, year, and everywhere else on the world you do either day, month, year, or year, month, day, which makes a lot more sense. Um, but anyway, yeah, I've never really, I've never really done that, and I quite like it actually. I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna start doing that for myself, possibly as a login thing to kind of reinforce the day of the Julian date. I, I kind of like that that concept of not really a message of the day, but sort of a message of the day, where I get the, the date when I when I first open a terminal. So maybe something I do. Second bit of feedback, I guess, if you could call it that, is from Alexander on Mastodon, and he found a picture and a, a little mini-article on a robot from the 1970s called Clatu, 
difference being that there's just one A in the robot Klaatu, K-L-A-T-U, and there are, of course, two A's in my name, K-L-A-A-T-U. So, uh, I'll put the link in the show notes because um, there's nothing funnier, really, than robots from the 1970s, aside from, I mean, robots from the 2000s. So um, I'll post the link because it, it is actually kind of just a, a fun, harmless, geeky read. That's it. That's all the listener feedback. So what I will do now is talk about metadata. And this is a conversation that was sparked by uh, a conversation I had with Lost in Bronx. And if you don't know Lost in Bronx, go listen to Hacker Public Radio or go to Cavalcade Audio and find out about Lost in Bronx because he's doing a lot of really, really creative and fun things, uh, both in the audiobook realm, the podcasting realm, uh, the traditional written form, all kinds of things. So go check that stuff out. But anyway, this guy, Lost in Bronx, is um, was, was talking to me. He doesn't even live in the Bronx, by the way. He's He lives in Arizona. But anyway, he was talking to me over email, and he he was saying that he how he disliked metadata. And I don't think he actually said why. I'd, he might have, but it doesn't matter really why he hates it. It's just he was talking about how he dislikes it, and it made me think about metadata. And I kind of realized that I actually don't love metadata either. And and then I thought, well, do I not love metadata? Because actually, I I want metadata. I need metadata. I I often rely on metadata. And yet, there's this compulsion. There's this thing about metadata that that really, really annoys me. So I sat down and really thought about it, and I realized that metadata for me is a little bit like Markdown for me. I look at Markdown, and I think, this is an important thing. This this gives structure to plain text. Without this, without some kind of specification, then, then everyone writes their plain text stuff in, in whatever form they want. And I mean, I look back at some of my stuff that I've written in plain text, and this, you know, prior to, to knowing about Markdown, and it is. It is exactly that. It is just a bunch of wacky, plain text stuff, and you can look back at BBSs and articles from from long ago, and their plain text and, and titles are decorated with, with some form of underlines, or they're decorated by a little box and centered, or they're, they're not separated at all. Lots of different ways to do it, and it makes parsing the thing very difficult. So the fact that Markdown exists, and then the fact that Markdown is so poorly poorly specified that Common Mark exists, it, it codifies something that people are doing anyway in in a in a predictable form, and that seems very important to me. However, if you said to me, "Would you rather write in Markdown or DocBook?" I would choose DocBook any day because that has. Uh, well, it has structure, but so does CommonMark, right? So what's the difference? DocBook has a tool chain that is a pleasure to use, while CommonMark has a, a collection of really, really not very good tool chains. And so it's the it's the way that we deal with this thing that annoys me, after all. So it's not CommonMark. Or, or rather, Markdown, but I, I prefer Common Mark because that's a better specification. So it's not Common Mark that I hate. It is the tool chains surrounding Common Mark. And in a very similar way, I I feel that metadata itself is a very useful thing. There are we have these files and these graphics and these pictures and these songs and all this, all this binary data out there, and there's not really a convenient way. Or there's not a way, or there wasn't a way, to kind of t- 
tell anyone about that binary data. So when metadata came around, people thought, oh my gosh, we need to, we need to have a little bit of a, a place in this file specification for information about the file that can be, that can be easily accessed by, by people who, who want to know what this big blob is on their computer. And so we got things like ID3 tags, and we got things like EXIF, and that's great because now you have this metadata. But what you don't really realize until you need to do it is that there's not really a convenient way to to interact with the metadata, and that's what's annoying. It's that it's that tool chain that's truly annoying. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I've never had a problem with metadata. I can react. I can interact with it quite quite easily, actually. And sure you can. Like if you're on a, there are two ways to, to, to sort of say, oh, this is actually not a problem. One way is you've developed a tool chain for yourself that works for you. How you came upon that tool chain, I don't know. You may have had to sit down and really, really think about it, or you may have just inherited a bunch of tools by default that have metadata in mind. And there's a good collection of tools out there that acknowledge that there's metadata out there in, in your files, and they do provide you with easy access to it. So if you're using a very specific music player, for instance, it probably does know about your ID3 tags. Now, can it change those ID3 tags? I'm not so sure. It depends. Um, there are some tools out there that do change ID3 tags. There are applications dedicated to changing tags. Okay, so that's part of the tool chain, but it's another component something that you have to look for specifically. There are tools out there for photographs. Can they change the EXIF data or do they just show the EXIF data? Or do they not even show the EXIF data and present it to you in some other way? Like, this is a storyline that we're going to present you because it thinks that from the EXIF data it can, it can, it can predict when a collection of photos are related to one another in a significant way to you. Either way, there's some acknowledgement of metadata. Maybe you're seeing it in some form, maybe you're not. Can you edit it? Maybe, maybe not. It depends on the tool. And either way, in both of these cases, what we're talking about are applications specifically designed to interact with that file type. So that file type no longer becomes useful on its own. You've got a photograph and you think, okay, I've got this photograph and that's great. I have the photo, and it is called some string of numbers, 2019.05.05 underscore 14.24.24 dot jpeg. There's this photograph. I know the date because it's in the file name, maybe, and that's about all you know about it. So there's this binary blob about which you don't really know a whole lot, and in order to make it a useful binary blob, you have to load it into an application that you have, that you have You've, you've auditioned, you've, you, you've decided that you like it, you've decided that it's useful to you, and maybe part of that decision was, well, it gives me access to the meta, metadata. Maybe it wasn't part of it, but, but maybe it does. So you've got the binary file, and the binary file plus the application of your choice now becomes a complete set. I don't see how that's useful. I mean, I see that that's definitely a workflow, but I don't see how that is an improvement, really, on, well, here's a binary blob. I mean, it is an improvement, I guess, because it's got EXIF data embedded in it. So once you unlock that EXIF data, now you know more about the binary blob. But I don't know how that's, it, like, the, the binary file 
on its own is no is by no degree improved by the presence of metadata, at least on a practical level. If you're scrolling through a bunch of files in your file manager, all those binary blobs still look like binary blobs. And if I showed you two binary blobs in a file manager and said, okay, which of these has metadata in it, you would not be able to tell. So that's what I mean by it's not being improved natively. If I showed you two AUG files in a file manager and said, which of these has metadata in it, you wouldn't be able to tell me which of those two files had been improved by metadata and which had not. So the, the, the sum total improvement here is zero until you use some special thing to unlock the improvement. And that annoys me. I, I don't find that to be efficient. I find it actually quite annoying to know that some of these blobs may have metadata and some of them may not, and I can't tell the difference. And the ones that I feel probably do, I still can't access that metadata easily and conveniently. So I feel like there's a, there's a really big gap here in the way we are looking at files uh, with metadata. And if you can't see the metadata on a, a, in, a, in a practical way outside of some specialized application, I just I don't see that it's that big of an improvement for most people may change the world for a professional photographer to have the ISO um, rating of, of of the film, as it were, uh, of their photograph in the in the metadata. It might change everything for them to have the aperture setting recorded in the in the EXIF data. That's huge. It's a big deal, but it's not accessible except in this special application, and then. It may only be that special application. There might be some other application with a workflow that they much, much prefer, but it doesn't look at the EXIF data. And there's no other way for them to learn that EXIF data except to open it in this other application. What I'm saying is that it's not smooth. I'm not saying that it's missing. I'm just saying that in terms of convenience, it, it becomes, it, it, it's, it's not convenient to access this, this extra data that we're lumping onto files. And so it, it, it's a deterrent for people to have to deal with metadata. You're asking people maybe to, to tag things in a way that, that half of the time they'll never even notice that tag. It's putting this weird burden of taxonomy onto people and then not showing them the fruits of their labor. So the reason this came up for me in Lost in Bronx is that we were working on our, 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 the blog that we have together called Mixed Signals. It's a gaming blog. I've mentioned it on this show before. If you're not reading it, you should go and read it. If you're into any kind of game gaming at all, then you should read this blog. Uh, or into geek culture, frankly, because it covers a lot more than just gaming. So you should go read that, mixedsignals.ml. But the, the thing that I was finding difficult was to, uh, to discover leader or header images for our blog posts to discover what kind of attribution they required and what source they they came from and so on. So because we have this, this folder of shared photo, photos, header images, and uh, graphics, I guess, really. Um, and if you find a, a header image that works for you, for, for the blog thing that you're about to post, then it's, it's silly to go find something else, right? It takes a lot of effort to go out and find Creative Commons graphics that are suitable. So just reuse an image that, that Lost in Bronx found, or vice versa. The, the problem is, of course, that now there's just this photo, and it's sitting in the image directory. No idea where the photo came from, 
who took the photo, how we're supposed to give attribution for the the photo. Maybe, maybe nothing's required. Maybe something's required. Who knows? So the the way that you you get around this right now, the, the way that me and Lawson Bronx deal with it is, you just do a grep through all the files until you find the image name. So you, now you know where it originally appeared, and then you can go get the attribution for it from 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 when it was originally written. But that just seems silly. That seems like a silly way to do it. And I I, I felt like obviously these graphic files, these image files, should be self self standing. They should be able to to provide the information to us that we that we need. So I sat down one day to do a quick script that would tag image files based on information that we provide. And the goal here really was to make the tagging process quick and easy and and to also sneak in some other image operations. Or you could see it actually as exactly the opposite of that or the that flipped that is to say i really wanted to make an image magic script that would crop and crop and resize a photo because what we were downloading was often 3000 4000 pixels and we knew that we really only needed about 1600 by 800 so maybe uh resize it down to something close to 16 uh, by 8 1600 by 800 and then and then crop it you know, crop off the edges just to to get it down to 1600 exactly by 800 and and then sneak in some some metadata tagging so i i drummed up a quick script i'll have to post it online somewhere and it, it works quite well it resizes the photo with one command it it applies metadata of your choosing to it and then in the reverse if you have an image file and want to know the metadata about it then you can just do a dash dash list and it lists the tags that we care about, which is very limited, right? We don't care about the aperture of the camera. We don't care about the the brand of the camera, or the length of the lens. We don't care any about anything about all, any of that. All we want is the data about the the photographer, like the the name that we're supposed to to give attribution to, the link where people can get it, just as a courtesy, and um, you know some maybe some other bits of data here and there. Primarily, that's that's the goal. That's the requirement. So I did this little script, and it worked quite well for me. And um, it it does give access to both writing and reading metadata with with one quick command, and it does exactly what we need. Like I say, we can drop all the metadata that we don't care about, or not drop it. Actually, just ignore it. And it kind of occurred to me that this kind of tool shouldn't be necessary, right? There should be that my environment, my work environment, should be, it should have this stuff built in. There should be just no no question of how I can access metadata. It should be it should be second nature to people. There should be preferably in the right click menu of of any binary blob that supports metadata. Should be able to right click and edit the tags or edit the labels or or whatever file attribute name we want to give this metadata, it should be second nature to people. And yet, for some reason, it's something that just isn't a given. It just isn't there. Now, there are different kinds of metadata in the computing world, and certainly there's like ID3, there's EXIF, uh, EXIF tags, and there's also file attributes that fi- certain file systems support, other file systems do not. So I, I understand that there is a little, that there's some level of difficulty here on 
deciding, okay, well, what are we standardizing? What are we really calling metadata? But I think for common formats like JPEG and AUG and PNG and FLAC and all of these other things, we know enough about these common formats that we that we have standardized metadata formats. So we're not shooting in the dark here. We're not guessing what what the file supports. We know exactly what the file type will support, no matter what file system you put it onto. Within that binary blob, we can have this this these certain tags. And I just think that we should start working that into our workflows everywhere. Applications that you don't even think it, it makes sense to have access to metadata in should have access to metadata. It should be something that c comes along with the file regardless of application. It should be something super easy to access, to modify, to read, all that stuff. And I just don't understand why it's not. And I think that we're doing ourselves a disservice by by kind of making it more or I shouldn't say making it more difficult, because it's not difficult. It's really not. I wrote a little quick script to, to do the job. It's, it's, it's simple. It's not rocket science. But we're, we're not making it convenient. And I think the convenience factor is important, because otherwise people just aren't going to use it, which I think we see. We see that bearing itself out. We don't, people don't tend to, to worry about the metadata around their files unless it directly affects them very, very immediately. Um, and I think we saw this in spades during the the reign of MP3s, where people would have MP3s in their music playing application, and they would realize, well, I need to tag this stupid thing, because otherwise it just says unknown artist, and it doesn't do the track order correctly. So I'll I'll take the time to actually modify these these tags. And you you saw a lot of music players at the time incorporating ID3 tags into their interface. You could you could actually access that stuff. I think it was a little bit frustrating sometimes because people didn't understand the difference between, for instance, an ID3 tag and the file structure that was created based on those tags. And that's that's a little bit strange. I feel like they could have done that maybe a little bit better. Um, but it was a step in the right direction, I think, because it made people aware that, that taxonomy could actually make a difference in their lives. Now I feel like we're kind of back to the great mystery of taxonomy where no one knows how to how to categorize their files and even if they take the trouble to do the taxonomy it doesn't really pop up that often in in the way that they interact with that file on a daily basis. So yeah, let's encourage a little bit of organization, some taxonomy. Let's make that easy just as if we were to make the markdown slash common mark workflow better, I, I feel like that would probably simplify things in, in a way as well. So that's just some thoughts about metadata, really, about how technology can encourage good practice, best practices in computing, if we actually make these systems available to ourselves and to others. So thanks for listening. I will talk to you next week, hopefully, from the South Island. listening to the GNU World Order OG cast. This has been Klaatu, 
you can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's Klaatu at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.